Section 36 of History of Egypt, Chaldea, Syria, Babylonia, and Assyria, Volume 3, by Gaston Maspero. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter 3. Chaldean Civilization, Part 9. The small tradesmen or free workmen, who by some accident had become involved in debt, seldom escaped this progressive impoverishment except by strenuous efforts and incessant labor. Foreign commerce, it is true, entailed considerable risk but the chances of acquiring wealth were so great that many individuals launched upon it in preference to more sure but less lucrative undertakings. They would set off alone or in companies for Elam or the northern regions, for Syria or even for so distant a country as Egypt, and they would bring back in their caravans all that was accounted precious in those lands. Overland routes were not free from dangers. Not only were nomad tribes and professional bandits constantly hovering round the traveller, and obliging him to exercise ceaseless vigilance, but the inhabitants of the villages through which he passed, the local lords and the kings of the countries which he traversed, had no scruple in levying blackmail upon him, obliging him to pay dearly for right of way through their marches or territory. There were less risks in choosing a sea route. The Euphrates on one side, the Tigris, the Ulai, and the Uknu on the other, ran through a country peopled with a rich industrial population among whom Chaldean merchandise was easily and profitably sold, or exchanged for commodities which would command a good price at the end of the voyage. The vessels generally were Kelex or Kufas, but the latter were of immense size. Several individuals, as a rule, would club together to hire one of these boats and freight it with a suitable cargo. The body of the boat was very light, being made of osier or willow covered with skins sewn together. A layer of straw was spread on the bottom, on which were piled the bales or chests, which were again protected by a rough thatch of straw. The crew was composed of two oarsmen at least, and sometimes a few donkeys. The merchants then pursued their way upstream till they had disposed of their cargo, and taken in a sufficient freight for their return voyage. The dangers, though apparently not so great as those by the land route, were not the less real. The boat was liable to sink, or run aground near the bank, the dwellers in the neighborhood of the river might intercept it and pillage its contents, a war might break out between two contiguous kingdoms and suspend all commerce, the merchant's career continually vacillated between servitude, death, and fortune. Business carried on at home in the towns was seldom the means of enriching a man, and sometimes scarcely afforded him a means of livelihood. Rent was high for those who had not a house of their own, the least they could expect to pay was half a silver shekel per annum, but the average price was a whole shekel. On taking possession they paid a deposit, which sometimes amounted to one-third of the whole sum, the remainder being due at the end of the year. The leases lasted, as a rule, merely a twelve-month, though sometimes they were extended for terms of greater length, such as two, three, or even eight years. The cost of repairs and of keeping the house in good condition fell usually upon the lessee, who was also allowed to build upon the land he had leased, in which case it was declared free of all charges for a period of about ten years. But the house, and as a rule, all that he had built, then reverted to the landlord. Most possessors of shops made their own goods for sale, assisted by slaves or free apprentices. Every workman taught his own trade to his children, and these in their turn would instruct theirs. Families which had an hereditary profession or from generation to generation had gathered bands of workmen about them, formed themselves into various guilds, 
or to use the customary term, into tribes, governed by chiefs and following specified customs. A workman belonged to the tribe of the weavers, or of the blacksmiths, or of the corn merchants, and the description of an individual would not have been considered as sufficiently exact if the designation of his tribe were not inserted after his name, in addition to his paternal affiliation. The organization was like that of Egypt, but more fully developed. The various trades, moreover, were almost the same among the two peoples, exceptions being such as are readily accounted for by the differences in the nature of the soil and physical constitution of the respective countries. We do not meet on the banks of the Euphrates with those corporations of stone-cutters and marble-workers which were so numerous in the valley of the Nile. The vast Chaldean plain, in the absence of mountains or accessible quarries, would have furnished no occupation for them. The Chaldeans had to go a long way in quest of the small quantities of limestone, alabaster, or diorite, which they required, and which they reserved only for details of architectural decoration, for which a small number of artisans and sculptors were amply sufficient. The manufacture of bricks, on the other hand, made great progress. The crude bricks were larger than those of Egypt, and they were more enduring, composed of finer clay and better executed. The manufacture of burnt brick, too, was carried on to a degree of perfection to which Memphis or Thebes never attained. An ancient legend ascribes the invention of the bricks, and consequently the construction of the earliest cities, jointly to Sin, the eldest son of Bel, and Ninib his brother. This event was said to have taken place in May-June, and from that time forward the third month of the year, over which the twins presided, was called Merga and Sumerian, Simanu in the Semitic speech, the month of brick. This was the season which was especially devoted to the process of their manufacture. The flood in the rivers, which was very great in the preceding months, then began to subside, and the clay which was deposited by the waters during the weeks of overflow, washed and refined as it was, lent itself readily to the occupation. The sun, moreover, gave forth sufficient heat to dry the clay blocks in a uniform and gradual manner. Later, in July and August, they would crack under the ardor of his rays, and become converted externally into a friable mass, while their interior would remain too moist to allow them to be prudently used in carefully built structures. The work of brick-making was inaugurated with festivals and sacrifices to Sin, Merodach, Nebo, and all the deities who were concerned in the art of building. Further religious ceremonies were observed at intervals during the month to sanctify the progress of the work. The manufacture did not cease on the last day of the month, but was continued with more or less activity, according to the heat of the sun, and the importance of the orders received, until the return of the inundation. But the bricks intended for public buildings, temples, or palaces could not be made outside a prescribed limit of time. The shades of color produced naturally in the process of burning, red or yellow, gray or brown, were not pleasant to the eye, and they were accustomed, therefore, to coat the bricks with an attractive enamel which preserved them from the disintegrating effects of sun and rain. The paste was laid on on the edges or sides while the brick was in a crude state, and was incorporated with it by vitrification in the heat of the kiln. The process was known from an early date in Egypt, but was rarely employed in the decoration of buildings, while in Chaldea the use of such enameled plaques was common. The substructures of palaces and the exterior walls of temples were left unadorned, but the shrines which crowned the ziggurat, the reception halls, and the headings of doors were covered with these many-colored tiles. Fragments of them are found today in the ruins of the cities, 
and the analysis of these pieces shows the marvellous skill of the ancient workers in enamel. The shades of color are pure and pleasant to the eye, while the material is so evenly put on and so solid that neither centuries of burial in a sodden soil, nor the wear and tear of transport, nor the exposure to the damp of our museums, have succeeded in diminishing their brilliance and freshness. To get a clear idea of the industrial operations of the country, it would be necessary to see the various corporations at their work, as we are able to do, in the case of Egypt, in the scenes of the mastabas of Saqqara, or of the rock chambers of Beni Hassan. The manufacture of stone implements gave considerable employment, and the equipment of the dead in the tombs of Uru would have been a matter of small moment, if we were able to exclude its flint implements, its knives, cleavers, scrapers, adzes, axes, and hammers. The cutting of these objects is bold, and the final touches show skill, but we rarely meet with a purity of contour and intensity of polish which distinguish similar objects among Western peoples. A few examples, it is true, are of fairly artistic shape, and bear engraved inscriptions. One of these, a flint hammer of beautiful form, belonged to a god, probably Aemon, and it seems to have come from a temple in which one of its owners had deposited it. It is an exception, and a remarkable exception. Stone was the material of the implements of the poor, implements which were coarse in shape, and cost little. If much care were given to their execution, they would come to be so costly that no one could buy them, or if sold for a moderate sum, the seller would obtain no profit from the transaction. Beyond a certain price, it was more advantageous to purchase metal implements, of copper in the early ages, afterwards of bronze, and lastly of iron. Among the metal founders and smiths all kind of examples of these were to be found. Axes of an elegant and graceful design, hammers and knives, as well as culinary and domestic utensils, cups, cauldrons, dishes, mountings of doors and coffers, statuettes of men, bulls, monsters and gods, which could be turned to weapons of all descriptions, arrow and lance-heads, swords, daggers, and rounded helmets with neck-piece or visor. End of section 36. Read by Professor Heather and By. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.